Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Ken Dash has Beatles Revolution number 38. Me and producer Andrew, I'm going to call this, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? It's the old joke. Man walks down the street, excuse me, sir, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. How do you get to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, producer Andrew? Practice, practice, practice. Because this weekend, as we're recording it, April 2018, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, with some of my favorite bands in the world, the Moody Blues going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. John Lodge has been on our Beatles Revolution podcast. One of our favorite guests, I think. Yeah, without a doubt. John Bon Jovi is going in. He's um, not done the podcast, yeah. Not done the podcast. He would be great for this. I'm sure he would, yeah. John, if you're listening, I, we'll try to find a way through somebody to, to get you to this. The Cars and Dire Straits. Mark Knopfler, one of my favorite guitarists in the world. Dire Straits, one of my favorite bands. Mark Knopfler solo, the album Sailing to Philadelphia. Um, just, you know, one of my favorites of all time. The Rag Picker's Dream, spectacular. And Mark Knopfler not coming to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, induction ceremony Friday night because he doesn't feel like it. Was there ever a time when you thought Mark Knopfler would come to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction? It honestly seemed inconceivable to me that he wouldn't. He's a really he's a nice guy. He's not, you know, when Van Halen was inducted and nobody from Van Halen came. I expect that. right. There's acrimony. Yeah, there. there's, if he's coming, if he's not. Deep Purple gets inducted last year. One of my favorite. They're my Van Halen. Sure. I had every bootleg, every tape. Richie Blackmore and the band hate each other's guts, and they say, "Well, we're talking a little bit now." But I, as dumb as it is. The band came, Richie didn't. I would have preferred Richie coming and the band not coming. Because to me, it's Richie's band and everybody else kind of is around that. He might be a little wacky, but he is. he wrote all those riffs. He played all those riffs. He and John Lord, the organist, were Deep Purple to me. And Ian Gillen's a great singer, but it should be Richie Blackmore's coming. Ian, guys, you can come or not, is what I would have loved to see, rather than Richie bowing out going, eh, I can't make it. But the one thing that... But Richie would have wanted to perform like Smoke on the Water on a lute. <laughs> you know what? Ask him. Or say, listen, if you don't want to just play Smoke on the Water, just come, say, hey, thanks, grab the trophy, and then we'll play Smoke on the Water. Well, well, now he's he's bringing back Rainbow, and he's like, hey, it's actually fun to blast out on the Stratocaster. And he played great. I've done it live at five. The shows he did in... in the UK and in Europe were tremendous. He could still rock it. He's not not playing it because he can't. He's not playing it really because he doesn't want to. It's like old hat for him, I think. As opposed to Randy Bachman, who's been here, who says every time I'm on stage, if all I had was a ukulele, I'm going to play taking care of business best I can to really, because I know people want to hear it. So that's the end of that story. You couldn't just come one night, hold up the trophy and say, Thanks, guys. means a lot. I look back on the work, and I'm really proud of it, and thank you, fans. That's what everybody understands, that it's for the fans, except for the people who don't show up or bring the grudge on stage with them. Just bring it. Here's, here's how classy Bon Jovi is. When he's at odds with Richie Sambora, his co-writer and guitarist, who's been excommunicated from the band for a few years, 
he when he asked, would you invite Richie? He his immediate response, not let me get back to you after I check with my attorneys. Mm-hmm. His immediate response was, it's inconceivable that I would ever be on that stage to accept this award without him. There would be no Bon Jovi without Richie Sambora. He must be there, or what's the point of me going? And I think John went even further saying that anyone who's ever been in the band should be there. Really, literally yeah. said that. If you've ever played And Alec me, John Such is going to be there yep. performing, I think, for the first time since 2001 or how, something. It's just so easy to be classy. And yeah. just think how, less, how much less aggravation there is when you say, hey, if you were ever in this band for any length of time, come on up. You're like Pearl Jam with their drummers. Like, spring everybody. Dave Abruzzi's like, what do you mean? Just bring everybody up. It's one night. It's a jam. Get some wine. Tell some stories about the old times. And he's rehearsed with Richie. They're going to play Bon Jovi with Richie. And great feeling. Hail fellow well met. And and the, I believe the Hall of Fame has whatever crooked methodology <laughs> as to who actually gets inducted. Yes. But I, the bands can still invite, they can still bring on stage, I think, whoever they want. Or, or at least they can they can give them a seat at the table, literally. Well, when Bruce was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it wasn't with the E Street Band, it was just as Bruce Springsteen. And Stephen has told me, and this is public knowledge, he said it on the air, I drove to his house. Just like the old days, like we were kids, I didn't even call, drove to the house, knocked on the door, and walked into the kitchen. And I sat down with him, and he knew, like, we're going to have a conversation. And he's not kicking me out. He, if I just drove and showed up, we're going to talk, he said. And I said to him, your legacy is with the E Street Band. For all you've accomplished by yourself, and it's tremendous, and your charity, and it's tremendous, your le- musical legacy is with this band. And he made his point. So a few years later, in 2014, the E Street Band is inducted sort of by themselves, which is dumb. It should have just been Bruce and the E Street Band. You don't induct, you know, one guy and the rest of the band. It seems ridiculous, but that was their catch-up. Was it Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you induct... Genesis, and then you induct Peter Gabriel for solo work. That makes sense. You induct the police, and you induct Sting. But you don't just say one guy and not the band if they've been that famous for so long together. Um, That was the weirdest part about the Beatles when George Harrison is there and not Paul. Mm -hmm. You know, just and George Harrison gets up there, and it was a great line. He said, and I'm the quiet Beatle. (laughs) (laughs) like that's just the night to forget about lawsuits but this brings me around to how do you get to the rock and roll hall of fame practice 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 because on the rock and roll date book their second trip to hamburg germany on this date in 62 the beatles kick off a grueling seven-week run at the star club in hamburg alternating nights of three and four hour long shows through may 31st 47 days one night off for Good Friday, April 20th. Let me repeat that statement. They played 47 day nights in a row, three to four hours a night, with one day off. <laughs> and that was their second trip there. Right. Right. That was Let's Do It Again, which is what brings out, I found a really cool book, guys. This was given to me by Barry Ryan from the band The Rock Cats. Great, great, you know, rockabilly band. 
And he loves the Beatles, too, and he covered the Beatles. I played it on Breakfast with the Beatles. The book's called How They Became the Beatles, A Definitive History of the Early Years, 60 to 64, by Gareth Pulowski, with uh, great pictures of the early days. So, Producer Andrew, this falls under the heading of What Would You... 100,000. What would a young band willing to do to make their mark? You're in Liverpool. You're playing little clubs for no money. And a couple of bands have gone to Hamburg, which is kind of like not that far, and they're, they're into rock and roll, and they make a little money. And one of the bookers says, yeah, Beatles, you know, they'll take any band from Liverpool. And they weren't really that good. They're just a generic cover band. They're the band in the bar playing American cover songs, playing rock and roll. So the Beatles arrive in 1960, and they're thinking, Hamburg, you know, it'd be like Liverpool. Germany bombed Liverpool. The Allies bombed Hamburg. It's going to be the same thing. Pete Best says, it was a jungle. Neon and sex. Every door led to a place where girls are taking off their clothes and other bizarre things like lady mud wrestlers. As the van's going down the street... And George and Pete Best are shocked. John Lennon smiles and says, this is a bit of all right, lads. <laughs> to which um, Paul McCartney says, I think we're going to like it here. So they go to the Kaiser Keller, the big club where they meet the guy who booked them. I, you can't make up this name, Andrew. Bruno Koschmeider, a heavy-set, broad-shouldered man with bushy eyebrows and no neck. And the booze is flowing. People are having a good time. They're dancing. They're thinking, this is going to be great. And he says, no, no, this club's fine. I want you to play my other club, the Indra. And they go to the Indra. And there's two people there. It's dark and sleazy. There's one light. And Pete asks him, is it open? And, <laughs> and Koshmider says, no one comes here, but you'll make it another Kaiser Keller. So an unknown band from Liverpool who aren't really that good yet. And you don't book them into their good club. You book them into the crappy club because you hope they're going to be good. And the guys are like, well, whatever. We're playing. Just can we get to the hotel? It's been a long trip from Liverpool, a bus to a train, to a plane, to a this. It's like, you know, we just want a, a bed and a hot bath. Okay. Where they sit, they're staying, their accommodations are at the Bambi Kino a cinema that specialized in B-Westerns and sex films. They're led along a gloomy hallway to a small room with two beds and a couch. Paul said, quote, you could swing a cat in here if it had no tail. John and Stu claim the beds. And Paul and Pico, well, we need beds. We can't alternate on the couch. So he took him to two rooms called the dungeons next to the bathrooms. And that's where they stayed for the next six weeks they had to wash and shave with cold water from the urinals. Oof. So that's their exposure. You're sleeping in a flea bag porno house in a in a, a bed and a couch, washing in the urinals. Would with, with one hundred thousand be willing to take that gig and stay there for like two months and see how it goes? Well, no. <laughs> but our band has definitely lamented our relative age. You know, most of us are in our late 20s, early 30s. Or actually, I'm in my late 20s. Everybody else is in their early 30s. Um, it's much easier to do that when you're younger. 
like if we had all graduated college a year ago, right, and we could just take a year to play to two people, a city, and just go around and do that, that's more feasible. But now we have jobs and other and wives and other complications that don't allow you the freedom to be enslaved by some German club owner for a month and a half. Working as indentured yeah. servants. And you're right, when you're 20 and 21, you can kind of get away with that. It, it's it's one of the things that is, even though I don't really like the music, that's really impressive about a band like the Goo Goo, the Goo, Goo Dolls, right? who made it when they were like 38, 40. Right, because they After still have to go through it, the same hardships. It's right. not like, well, we're older, so you have to pay us more and we need a nicer hotel. No, no, it doesn't work that way. 38 or 18, you're sleeping in a nicer version of the German urinal. Yeah, how much you get paid depends on how many drinks we sell or how right. many tickets you sell. It has nothing to do with your age and whether or not you're, you've got a family or whatever. So here's the crazy thing that happens. Uh, that next night they get on stage at the intro, a small crowd, because Bruno had said, a new band from Liverpool. The guys are really depressed. They're tired. You know, you feel like crap. You feel like, A, you've been hoodwinked, but B, we're going to try to stick it out. And they get on stage, and they're they're the 1960s version of shoegazers. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just standing there and playing songs. That's what they did in the clubs, and that's what they did in the in the cafes at Aintree Town Hall, which is, you know, like the, the little club, like the uh, uh, JC's kind of thing upstairs. And Bruno, like two of the most famous words ever said in the history of rock and roll, screams at them, mock show. What? Mock show, mock show, mock show. Make a show. You're just standing there. Make a show. It's one of the worst ways to get heckled. Right, from the owner screaming, do something. Be better. <laughs> right. This time, don't suck. So Pete Best says, that's what we did. We went from one extreme to the other. John and Paul were the looniest. John did his best to imitate Gene Vincent, grabbing the microphone like he was going to lay into the audience, leaping around like a maniac. Stu remained a puppet, quiet and cool. Paul screamed like Little Richard, and George was real serious trying to make the act from becoming too ridiculous. There wasn't much I could do from the drums, but I, once in a while I'd stand up or hop around with a tom-tom under my arm. And we started developing a mock show. We'd stomp around the stage for hours at a time, and we played American music. We played Fats Domino, Carl Perkins, Elvis, Little Richard, but one of their favorites was Ray Charles' What I Say, because they could, it was a call and response, and they'd bang their beer bottles. And after a couple of weeks, the, so many people start coming to see the crazies from Liverpool that they extend the show from till ending at 12.30 till 2 in the morning. And they're playing now six hours a night, 15 minutes on, 45, 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off, six hours a night, seven days a week. And the people around the Indra Club are, are so pissed about the noise, they call the police. On October 3rd, 1960, the police closed the Indra Club so Bruno goes, okay, come back to the Kaiser Keller. Hmm. And now they're the headliners at his bigger club. Also appearing on that bill was Rory Storm and the Hurricanes with some guy named Ringo Starr on drums. Uh-huh. It's it, the way this is weaved together, like a Shakespearean tale of how 
every little piece, like a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle, and every piece you need just seems to come in the next spot. Um, while they're playing and making this big effect, they meet Astrid Kirscher, you know, and they, they meet Klaus Vormann, who had a fight with Astrid and is walking by, hears this great noise, comes downstairs, falls in love with them, and brings his girlfriend Astrid to see them. She falls in love with Stu Sutcliffe, the bass player, taking all these pictures of him, and she comes up with this haircut, this cool bowl cut that she thought was really cool and avant-garde because they were, they were the hipsters. There's a lot of fighting and gangs and stuff in, in Hamburg at this time. Okay. So here we are at the Kaiser Keller, and she's bringing the artsy-fartsy set. So these loud, German, crazy, you know, beer-swilling, ready-to-fight group and here's the downtown boho Soho crowd with weird haircuts and sunglasses at night coming to see the Beatles. Can you imagine that scene going on night after night? And somehow they didn't kill the artsy-fartsy crowd but let them. So they shot films and we're doing art and they're doing design and it's work. And that was perfect for Stu because he really wanted to be an artist. He didn't want to be a musician. And they start playing and they met Tony Sheridan, who was the big... English guy who was playing there. And he was at the other club owners club, the top 10 club. They say, Hey guys, would you back me up on something? And you know, they record a song called my Bonnie, my Bonnie lives over the ocean. And they play at the top 10 club. What they didn't know was that each, each sort of promoter had spies in the other guy's club. And when Kotschmeider found out that he was playing, the, they were playing the competitions uh, club, Peter X Eichhorn, um, he grabbed the guys and said, you won't ever play the top 10 again. You can take that any way you like. My boys know how to create trouble. To which a 19-year-old John Lennon says, get stuffed. Because <laughs> that's John, right? Push me, right. I'm going to push you back. Uh, Pete said, we thought he's not crazy enough to send us back to Liverpool in coffins. Maybe we'll just get beat up. Later on, there's a mysterious fire at the Kaiser Keller. Uh-huh. And... Kotschmeider says, calls the police and said, the Beatles started it. And they arrest the Beatles, the, the German police arrest. Well, uh, John wasn't taken. Stu had moved to Astrid's house, but Paul and Pete are put in stir for three hours. Hmm. Then the goons who had arrested them, them, come on, let's go. And they take them right to the airport without their instruments, without anything, and just boom, get on the plane, get the hell out of here and throw them out. And then the other, the, with all four guys. John at least had his guitar because he, he you know, wasn't with them at the time. He's, and here's the thing. We get back to Heathrow, we have nothing. What had promised to be our first big professional tour ended in disaster. He goes, John stayed at home, completely dis disillusioned. He wished he had the professional quality of Tony Sheridan, put some money in a savings account. Paul loafed around the house until his father persuaded him to get a job. Because Paul, he had been pissed that Paul quit school to go to Hamburg. So Paul signed up at the labor exchange, got a job as a truck driver's helper delivering packages for the Christmas rush. When he got sacked from that, he found a, a job working winding electric coils at Massey and Coggins. Pete Best made some phone calls to Icorn where Tony Sheridan was, and said, could you send our equipment back at least? He said, on the day the ship arrived, my mother and I took a cab to the wharf, picked up the crate, 
it actually had my drums, a guitar, sound equipment, and some gear. We put it inside a taxi and left the smash crate on the docks. George, who was deported because he was 17, sure. you know, he was embarrassed and ashamed of being deported. He thought he ruined the band. He just stayed at home in his room. And they said, well, we should just play and start again. So they try to play a gig at the Casbah. And Brian Kelly, a Liverpool promoter organizing a show for the Litherland Town Hall post-Christmas show, December 27th, day after Boxing Day. And he phones around and says, I'm one band short. Who are those kids who used to play the Jack around the coffee house? The Beatles. Are they any good? Like, well, they just play Germany. So he bills them as the Beatles direct from Hamburg, the teen dance hall at Litherland. This is the show that Billy J. Kramer saw. Okay. That he's talked about that, where it's mm-hmm. the greatest thing he's ever seen. Yeah, yeah. And the, the guys nearly cause a riot because nobody had ever seen mock show. They had seen the Americans kind of do that. And, you know, they'd seen Elvis on a movie, but they never saw local guys dancing, jumping, screaming, jumping like Pete Townsend, running around the stage, diving into the audience. And they went absolutely fucking nuts. And all the girls are swarming them. And one girl said, you sure, you sure speak good English for Germans. <laughs> Uh, Pete Best said, we had introduced a British audience for the first time to mock show, and off they went. Did Isn't that they, a hell of a story? Yeah, that's amazing. I've never heard most of that. Did they rehearse before the show? Yeah, they had played. They went back to the Casbah to get back into what gear they had, oh, okay. what they needed to buy. And, you know, again, by that time, and it's something that I say to every band, you play seven nights a week for 47 days or for two months the first time. And they go back in 62, right? Two years later, play every night, four hours, five hours. You're either going to quit or be the greatest band that ever lived. It can't be in between. You can't still be mediocre. If I played golf seven days a week, (laughs) every day for months on end, I'd either be pretty good or I'd give up. You know, it's got, you have to get better at something and you go, you know what? I'll never get better at this. This is literally all I've got. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think about just knowing what a difference it makes for my band when we practice two days a week versus one one day a week before a show or not at all before a show. Just how much better it feels. Night and day, right? Yeah. And this is kind of goes back to to Bruce and the E Street Band or Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers or Elton John. A lot of his band members have been with him for 40, 50 years. You know, there's a reason they keep these guys around, even if they're not writing songs, because there's something about the way that feels and the way the energy gets projected to an audience when you have experience and when you're, you're, you're sort of on the same wavelength as a band. So I can only imagine what performing... 47 nights in a row would would do from the beginning of that run to the end of that run to a band as far as playing together, as far as harmonizing. And, and it paid off when they came to America and couldn't hear themselves, you know? Right, because you had played those songs so many times. You just knew. You didn't have to look at each other and say, wait, is that is that the A to the F? What, you know, you... You knew, and every story about how amazing it was that John Lodge said, they hit the stage, 
and just destroyed it. It was just unbelievable. Everybody talking about that energy of them hitting the stage. I get it when you read this history of what they did and this lunatic mobs, German mobster club owner going mock show. And you can either go, I'm tired, I'm cold, this is disgusting, I'm not washing in a urinal, we're going home, or you go, let's try. As long as we're here. As long as we're here, let's mock show and jump around and go let's nuts. Stay till they deport us. Which is Wait, they, what? <laughs> okay. But I, and I understand how you feel you failed. You come back, they've got your instruments, you didn't get paid, right. it was hell, and you're just... You're in your house going, that sucked. We, we thought we were going to go conquer the world. Trying to get the taste of the urinal out of your mouth. <laughs> you think, you're, you think you've conquer, you're going to conquer the world. You know, from there, we'll go to Paris yeah. and we'll go on to Brussels. They're like, no, it's just hell. But they probably were a little bit relieved that they didn't get beat up. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure, sure that was a big part of it. That would be in my mind. <laughs> of course. But we didn't get burned in the fire. <laughs> but you know what you didn't, maybe you didn't even realize. At that moment, when somebody goes, "Hey, after Christmas, we need an extra band for this, you know, te- you know, a teen dance," and you don't realize without even thinking about it that what you did in the strip club, when you play that back home, and the place goes absolutely apeshit, you go, "Oh." And maybe they were just going through the motions. I mean, I, I that didn't really convey how excited they were to to be there, but. I mean, having that muscle memory is something. I get sore after the day after a show. Sure, because you've really physically put your heart and soul into it, especially if you're jumping. John Lennon said, we're just a band, made it big, because we went to Germany, and when we came back, no one could touch us. And that was, it's very, you know, John is a way of simplifying something, and I think that's what it was. Um, Herman's Hermits, uh, Peter Noon, always said, you know, we, we were on a bill with them, and you know, they literally run onto the stage, put on their instruments, and play the first chord, and the place goes nuts. And I turned to our guitarist and said, can we do that? Because I'll be ready to sing. He's like, no, we have to, you know, set the amp and get tuned up and, you know, make sure, like, it, it works and check. He goes, well, how can they do it? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he met... Would you ever envision running on this stage, literally physically running onto the stage, put your instruments on and go, one, two, three, and hit a song? I I will tune my bass after sound check. Right. Set it down. And then when I get back on stage, I don't know, an hour later, the bass is still in tune, Ken, but I tune it again. Just to be sure. Just to be sure. As every other band did back then. Yeah. And these lunatics just grabbed it and said, we'll tune as we play. And every, you know, you've sat here with me. Every artist that's come through here goes, you just couldn't believe it. You just couldn't believe it. It was like a, a fireball that just came through. And you go, yeah, mock show. So we talk about the early days uh, at this point. A lot of folks have stories about it as well. Uh, and I love your feedback on Beatles Revolution and what you guys think. One of the suggestions that we've had producer Andrew and it's something you had brought up a while back um you had mentioned that you thought help was really an off-color comedy and how you felt you know like the sort of cheap sort of racist Indian things having a British actor Leo Kern putting on an Indian accent yeah it's it's just it's something that would not have flown today absolutely not so somebody asked could you review all the Beatle movies 
And uh, coming up in a few weeks is the anniversary, the release of Yellow Submarine of 1968. And it's coming out in a new 4K digital print with remastered sound. And I think when that's released, that would be a perfect moment to review all the movies. We go from Hard Day's Night to Help to, you know, Magical Mystery Tour to Yellow Submarine to the horror of (laughs) Let It Be. Right. Again, let me give you the title of this book, How They Became the Beatles, A Definitive History of the Early Years, 1960 to 1964, by Gareth Pawlowski, P-A-W-L-O-W-S-K-I. I don't know if it's still in print. I hope it is. Because there's the Lewison book that has every detail about everything. But if you don't feel like getting a book the size of War and Peace, this does it really well of just going through the elements of what happened. And there's some great pictures in there of them at the early days and posters and stuff like that. It really gives you a great sense of how you start from virtually nothing, a group of friends, to going through Helen back in Hamburg and becoming the greatest band in the world, thanks to a German mafioso who says, mock show. Um, again, thank you for joining us on Ken Dasho's Beatles Revolution, available uh, wherever podcasts are given away for free. We don't charge. No, it's uh, on the iHeartRadio app, on iTunes, wherever you get it. And I love your ideas for shows, for uh, what we should do on upcoming podcasts, Elements of the Beatles, the British music scene, how music has changed through the years. Uh, I love everyone that I've done, but our special about the music business now with John Bulos from Atlantic Records and Sammy Steinlight, who does indie promotion, and Andrew and me, uh, that was a highlight because it relates to how we go from 64 through 2018, and we'll do another one of those along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell your friends.